If you enjoy this episode of the Permaculture Podcast and would like more from the show, become a member of the podcast Patreon community today. Join now at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Your direct donations allow the podcast to thrive rather than subsist. Donate now using Venmo at permaculturepodcast, online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or you can send something in the mail. Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. If you want to learn more about anything discussed in today's interview, have a question about permaculture, or would like to suggest a guest or topic for a future episode, you can contact me by calling or sending a text to 717-827-6266, or reach me by email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Our individual permaculture practices are rooted in the teachers we learn with, in the books we read to expand our knowledge, in the videos we watch on YouTube to answer a particular question, or the documentaries we find on Netflix that give us a sense of connection to the larger world. Our practices are also grounded in the hyperlocal, the bioregion where we tend the soil and care for plants and animals, among the communities, people, and cultures we come from, and those we find ourselves immersed in at this moment. As someone from the United States living in Central America, my guest today, Scott Gallant, shares his experiences in these different regions and how his location in the world influences his approach to design, universal lessons, and specific solutions. We also talk about the cultural and economic differences, particular to Costa Rica compared to the United States, and adapting to our local conditions. We begin with Scott's biography and background, and then move into the conversation about his work in the tropics and Costa Rica. I'm from the United States, from a small kind of farming community in Ohio, um, outside of Cincinnati, really close to the Kentucky and Indiana borders, kind of two generations removed from my, basically my grandparents or great-grandparents on my mother's side were, were on the farm, kind of homestead level lives, and was fortunate enough to grow up in a really rural community that felt like a community, it was kind of on the edge of farming into suburbia, and a couple of miles down the road, getting into the, the city of Cincinnati. And so I, I was fortunate to grew up really with a connection to nature. Um, that's something that I, I look back upon that really stands out to me. And that was always in there somewhere, kind of lost it like many people in, in high school with just sports and normal life. And then I went to a small university in, in Ohio called Wabash College where I studied economics. And I was very much in a different path. I, I was basically being set up to go work for like a big five accounting firm. I had job interviews and an offer. And the short of it was that I was, I took a break and I went out West to work a bit in the mountains, building trails for conservation course. And that was the first time I met people doing something different. I hadn't been exposed really at all growing up in this small town called Harrison, Ohio to people that were doing I don't think in gap years or in Peace Corps or AmeriCorps, all, all these kind of alternatives that uh, seem more common now. I had none of that. It wasn't an option. And, and so when I was out West, 
finally reconnected with nature again as a young adult. I, I started meeting people doing all these crazy things. And I was in this place of good fortune to not have any debt coming out of university, which is one of those other things I look back on as a big, one of the indicators that allows me to be here today. And I ended up uh, deciding to travel, hitchhike down through Central America to learn Spanish. And along the way, kind of mochilando, like having the backpack on, volunteering on farms, pretty classic, and ended up slowly being introduced to permaculture and agroforestry. I ended up at a project with my former partner called Rancho Mastatal down here in Costa Rica, which is where I'm at now. And we ended up spending nine years there, became kind of co-managers, co-owners of that project. And at the beginning, I, I came there to learn about natural building, bamboo construction. I was really interested in becoming useful again, reskilling, kind of getting away from the computer world of economics where I'd been mostly playing with Microsoft Excel and slowly got introduced to the plant world, had a, had a number of really amazing mentors. And that first moment of planting a seed and watching it germinate, it just started triggering something for me. And, and in that project, there wasn't a lot of energy being put toward the agricultural sphere. And so I drifted into that, kind of found the open niche where I could spread my wings and just kind of went all in and, and haven't really looked back. And so I started managing the farm there and, and was really more in the agroecology, agroforestry discipline for a few years before one of my mentors, Chris Shanks, who has a project in Nicaragua, asked me if I was interested in, in starting to co-teach the permaculture design course. That was probably in 2012, 2013. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, if I'm going to teach about this, I really need to understand what this is and, and really started a deep study. And I think what I took away from that, that initial focus of studying the first course I took was the power of design. And that's kind of been with me, me ever since. I've been now here in Costa Rica for about 12 years. And I have a, a small design firm with two other business partners, Sam Kenworthy and Hugo Soto. We've been in operation for four years. And I keep diving deeper into permaculture. It has its flaws, which I think we'll probably touch upon in this conversation and can be a somewhat complicated discipline domain to approach here in, in Latin America for a number of reasons. But as I, as I get deeper into it and study it more, and I am more and more convinced that it's a really powerful tool. So that's kind of been my journey into it, the short version. And yeah, and here I am today really trying to, to live it in my, my daily practices and, and the professional work that we do with Porvenir Design. Chris Shanks, that's Project Bonafide, right? Yeah, that's correct. On the Ometepe Island um, in Nicaragua, really amazing project. <laughs> Nicaragua's had a lot of challenges these last few years, but for a while, it was a, it was a really influential place for a lot of practitioners in, in Central America. Why did you decide to stay in Costa Rica rather than take what you had been learning and bring that back? to the States? I don't know if I ever really made the decision. It was one of those things that you know, you're just kind of flowing, you're, you're 22, 23, 24, and, and doing this fun thing. My first maybe five or six years here in Costa Rica, I maintained a pretty strong connection to the U.S., and I would, I would return for four or five months every year. I, I was able to work on some projects in Iowa, in Massachusetts, Vermont, and so I was kind of walking between those two worlds. And about maybe five years ago, made the decision to really focus in on Costa Rica. And 
I think what really kind of turned it over for me was just realizing that my expertise that I had been developing, I, oh, I wouldn't consider myself an expert yet, you know, working toward that, maybe not even working toward that, actually. <laughs> I don't like that idea, but that everything I was learning was really focused here in the context of the tropics and trying to relearn all that felt really intimidating going back to the United States and just kind of dove in further and further. And it, it's been an interesting transition. So it was never really a plan. I didn't move here with any intention of living here or working here. And now I'm, I'm set up here. I'm, I have my residency. I have recently got legal working permit, basically as a permaculture designer, which I might be the first time that's happened in the country, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the answer. And I appreciate that. And the reason why I asked it is because I know that with the way that permaculture has developed, we kind of have a umbrella of philosophical ideas, the ethics, the principles, and all these other pieces when it comes to the idea of design, which are fairly universal. But when it comes to the actual implementation, it really is rooted in the landscape that you're in because you're going to develop those relationships with the plants that grow there, the animals that live there, the pollinators that you can bring in are going to vary. And especially as we've grown these ideas over time to focus more and more on local plants and native plants that, you know, we may have a garden where we're growing plants from all over the world, but when it comes to tending the landscape that we find ourselves in, that's usually a smaller or limited portion of that practice where we're bringing anything in and instead we're stewarding those outer zones with the plants and animals and people that are in that area. Pre-pandemic, we were starting to work in other countries. I, I just had a call about going back to Puerto Rico, for example, and, and it's kind of terrifying to go to another country, even if it, the climate is, is really similar, because so much of what you know has become specific to this place. Like our, the reason people hire us now is because we know exactly where to source plants, who to call to get the, you know, the spring concession, all these kind of these details that really facilitate the, the process of implementation, make it easier, more affordable, save time, money, et cetera. And, and as soon as we jump somewhere else, even if the context is similar, Latin America, humid tropics, it's a really intimidating thing. And obviously we have those conversations with clients before jumping and we, we encourage them and try to look for local people that can support that process. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting how just traveling a very short distance, you know, I, I want to put a lot of brakes on what we claim we can deliver to clients. You may be able to have a universal conversation, but that conversation doesn't necessarily lead to universal design or universal solutions. Yeah, exactly. And with being in the tropics and having spent some time working on projects in the temperate environment here in the United States, do you have any insights on to how those differ and what your experiences have been like between those different bioregions? I think there's just a huge cultural difference that can't be understated. Most of the projects that I was working on in the States, you know, myself, the landowners were the ones doing the physical labor, running the machines, planting trees, et cetera. And as soon as we get into Costa Rica, Latin America in general, most of the time the owners are not doing that work. They're hiring that out. That's a huge difference. It changes just 
everything of what you would recommend, what you would trial, your ability to practice observation really well. And that is, it's a really interesting conversation we can get deeper into. The other big piece that is obvious, but is winter. You know, we don't have to bury water pipes two meters in the ground like, like we were in Northern Iowa or in Vermont on different projects. And your design starts changing big time when you don't have to plan for winter, you, you instead need to be planning for these other aspects of seasonality and the challenge of storing things and the constant pest cycles designed for constant fertility cycles. Those are two of the things that really jump out for me. I think the tropics have this great advantage that you know a lot of people understand is in a lot of ways, it's easy to grow things here in the sense that there's so much rain and so much sunlight. And I think that's really true if we can focus our efforts on kind of low-hanging fruit, the easy crops. And that's where we end up pushing a lot of people toward trying to just do things really simply and, and have those successes. And I think pretty quickly in, the, in this climate with good design and good culinary choices, you can eat off of your land, you know, really nutrient-dense food and quite quickly. And I think that's a big, big difference in compared to the temperate climate. Can you speak more about that pest cycle and the climate that you encounter there? As you say, that idea that you can grow year-round, but the differences with storing things and being able to plan and prepare for that. Yeah. So, I mean, as simple as without the cold temperature of winter, we don't get these breaks in pest cycles. So nothing, nothing dies back. And so it's, you're just constantly dealing with things that want to eat your roots or your plants. We have a lot of problems with small mammals. I know problems isn't a great word, but we lose a lot of crops to small mammals. And so we don't get that winter dieback. And so the cycle is just, it's pretty constant, which is also how the soil fertility cycle here works. In the tropics, most of our nutrients are actually stored in the canopy, in the microbial life, in the insects versus stored in layers of soil that build up over time, we don't have those deep layers of topsoil in the humid tropics in particular. And so you're constantly playing with these two cycles, the pest cycle that is, is fairly constant. Obviously, individual species have their individual cycles within the year, and you, and you try to navigate that. But it, it does mean you don't get a break. And then with regard to storage, it's, it's really similar in that decomposition, ferment microbial activity never never stops so trying to store sweet potatoes in a root cellar really isn't very feasible here maybe there's specific microclimates higher elevation places you can get to in the tropics where you can have those conversations but for example we'll make a big batch of kimchi I have to put that in the refrigerator after it's been fermenting for four or five six days I can't really store that out very easily without changing the climate in some way that in a temperate climate we you know we have that advantage and those are you know those are just design parameters and and it kind of forces you to just live really in the present versus storing things for that future law because there's pretty much always some food that you can be taking advantage of at that exact moment compared to like a temperate climate where you might plant out a lot of those sweet potatoes because you can plan to cure them and put them in a root cellar for the periods of the year when you can't grow, you can look at planting a smaller amount of those on a more continuous cycle, harvest on an ongoing basis, 
and have a wider variety of plants in the same space that we might plant just those sweet potatoes in a temperate climate. Yeah, exactly. So on like my little homestead, which is, I don't own it, it's kind of a rented lot, or we get it as a work contract. I try every month to put yucca in the ground, to put some sort of a roid like taro, yampi, takiske, they have all sorts of names, dashin, coco yam, put those in the ground. I try to plant pineapple every month and just kind of staying on top of that cycle. And we try to bring that to larger farming operations where, you know, sometimes it's easier or harder depending on the capacity of the labor force, the scale of, of seeds we're seeking. But that becomes really, really key because unless I'm selling my yucca to a conventional packer here, a conventional market, like what am I gonna do with 200 kilos of yucca, it doesn't last very long. People have to put it, they, they cover it in wax, for example, to make it last a little bit longer. And okay, maybe I can ferment that. I can turn it into a chicha, an alcoholic beverage. Maybe the best strategy is the pig, call it the tropical refrigerator. And so, yeah, there's a kind of a constancy here in the, in the tropics that we have to play with. And that points to some conversations that I've had with a shared friend and colleague of ours, Joshua Hughes, for the work that they've been doing to grow turmeric, but all the processing that they need to do throughout the year so that the quantities are available for them to get them to market. And looking at the difference between selling fast and local at in-country market at a certain value versus processing that into a, a secondary or tertiary product that can then be moved to another space and then move those financial resources back into the jungle. What you're speaking to on like that smaller scale just seems reflective of all this thought, work, and energy that goes into planning and preparing when you're in a different context like this. Yeah. What we find a lot of times is a lot of our clients, students will come down here from the States, Canada, Europe, you have temperate climates and they're trying to bring their cuisine preferences, culinary preferences with them. And they start planting tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and kale. And, and you can grow all of those things in different parts of this country with different ease, but they are harder to grow than all these perennial vegetables. We have these tropical tubers, a lot of herbs and spices. We spend a lot of time trying to like, what we say in Spanish, like cambiar el chip, like change the mindset of folks to focus on, you know, what can you do easy? As soon as you're, you're picking these things that are a little bit more challenging, you're just setting yourself up for a failure early on in your work. And I feel like that has big ramifications in your confidence and your approach. And maybe five, 10 years down the road, when you're, you're more skilled and you understand the context of the place you're living and working in and where to get the best seeds, then tackle those more challenging crops. And we really push people toward that. And it's a hard step because, you know, we all want to eat broccoli and tomatoes and cucumbers, but maybe those don't grow where we live in the tropics, even though we can grow a lot of other things. Yeah, I think about the importance of those food traditions. It's something that I've been exploring myself, thinking about all the things that we raised and ate when I was a child, but how markets have changed and food availability and... Dina Falcone wrote, I think it's Foraging and Feasting. And when I think about these dietary traditions and things like that, she had wrote a series of these master recipes. And it's the idea, okay, what leafy vegetable do I have that I can use to create something that is similar to a pesto 
and get something that reminds me of home using what is there on the ground or like what starches can I substitute in that maybe I'm not doing mashed potatoes, but can I be boiling and mashing one of the other tubers that are available and lead towards these food traditions that are comforting but adapted to the climate that we're in. Yeah, I like that idea of master recipes. It's like a culinary analog. In the past, we've done an analysis for people called a, a basic pantry analysis, where we're really looking at that and breaking down, what do you want to eat? Can it grow here? Is it easy to grow? Is it hard to grow? And how do we shift your diet toward what grows well? And, and then partner up with the chef, with somebody you know deeper in the nutrition world, and perhaps you can build out a, a really good menu for your restaurant or education center, or, or just your family. And yeah, instead of purchasing potatoes, you're, you're growing yuca and you can do all the same things. It's, it's just, it's a bit of experimentation and play. And there's a huge role for that, I think, in the permaculture community that people are deep into. And it's really fun to see, but I think it's often forgotten that that post-harvest piece is as important as the design piece, as, is, as important as the planting management of everything in the field. If you love to grow plants and you love to grow food, but you're not good at necessarily cooking or harvesting, how can we develop those relationships so the food that we are growing goes to people where it's used? If we're not great at composting, do we know somebody who is, or are we interested in learning some of those skills so that we can take the residue from our garden or our crops and then turn it into what's used for the next year while also being open to being able to admit this is not something I like, this is not something that I'm good at, and use that as a jumping off point to build deeper and better relationships with other people who are. Yeah, I think it's such a great point, playing to your strengths. I mean, it just hits back to the idea of community and that you're not expected to do everything. I like cooking, but I'm not a great chef, but what I'm really good at is having the best ingredients making sure I always have really high quality vanilla. I always have starchy tubers that are organic from my garden. I always have garam masala mix that I've made myself from various projects and having those on hand. And that, that alone just gives me the confidence to cook. And then of course you try to befriend as, as many chefs as you can and invite them to your house. And that, that's another strategy I recommend. Everyone in my mother's side of the family cooked. So every holiday it was my 11 aunts and uncles coming together and everybody had a recipe that they were cooking. And it was just, it was always an amazing time. Community at its best. And how do we design our lives so that can happen? I think it's completely doable, completely feasible. I wish I could remember who it was that said it at the moment. It was a past guest at the show said something like a potluck is anarchy in action. And I like it. <laughs> being able to bring people together in that way. And, and it's a trust thing. You're like trusting everyone's going to show up and bring abundance. And you're always nervous that there won't be enough food and there's always too much food. You plan for 10, you bring for 12, 20 show up and you still go home with leftovers. Yeah. In Spanish, the potluck, it translated to Mesa de Abundancia. It's like table of abundance, which is great. As we talk about food traditions and culture and bringing people together. What you said earlier about the distinction between working with permaculture projects in the United States when it comes to the culture of homesteading and people who are on the land and doing the work themselves, how does that shift when you're in Costa Rica and it's not the landowners who are doing the work? And do you know why that's the case? 
I'll say that there are people that are engaged that way. So there's people that are on more on a homestead scale and there are projects that are well-known in the country where the owners are in it every day. What we're finding increasingly with our clients, which probably isn't a surprise, they're generally coming from wealthier backgrounds, generally from the States, although not all of them by any stretch. We have a number of clients and projects that are Costa Rican, Latin American owned, operated, et cetera. The cost of labor here is relatively low, typically paying around $3 an hour for like a farm worker. And so it's just easier for somebody to pay a guy 10,000 colones, let's say $20 a day to weed trim instead of you do that yourself. And that person's probably a lot better at it than you. you. A lot of our clients are, you know, they're coming from professional backgrounds, more urban settings. It has all sorts of implications and it can be really challenging for us. A lot of our work is trying to bridge that gap between the, the teams in the field and the clients that are holding a longer term vision, maybe aren't as present. And a lot of the responsibility ends up falling on us of the observation, those decision-making points on the ground. And an example, I was recently talking with a client who we're giving a proposal and a budget to just install, I think it was like a half hectare orchard, something relatively simple. And, and they were asking if this can be financially viable, you know, selling the crops. We're talking about jackfruit and pejibaye and maybe jaguar, cacao, pataste. And my response, as much as I didn't want to say it for obvious reasons, it'll be obvious, is that I think as, as soon as somebody has to hire us as outside consultants, I don't know if an agricultural project can be financially viable here without the owner instead taking on that management and design work. And the farms that I see that are most successful here, that are most interesting, that last the longest are the ones where the owners, wherever they're from, Costa Rica or Italy or Sweden or the US, they live on the farm and they're in it every day. And I think there's a huge piece of participation that is required by landowners to really see projects to success. And we talk about this a lot with clients and it's still a big challenge for us. And I think for a lot of clients who are looking, looking to do really good work from an ecological perspective, from a reforestation, conservation, maybe providing livelihood, all things that we're, we're, we're big fans of, but without their daily participation, I always wonder about how successful can a project be? One of my permaculture instructors, Rico Zook, did international permaculture. He was teaching yeah. in northern India near Nepal for decades. And one of the things that he brought up and reinforced the importance of designing out the designer yeah. so that projects can stand on their own and it sounds like what you're pointing to is that if your clients are not in a place to provide the ongoing education to the people who are coming to their land to do the work for them, if not, they're not willing or in a place to talk about the plants, manage the project, bring things in if they die or need replaced, they would functionally need to hire someone such as yourself to be running that farm full-time as the manager, which reduces the ability for it to be successful and profitable in the ways that I think they imagine. Yeah, we're not the cheapest design firm out there, but we still cost money. And so as soon as you have to overlay us into that calculation, 
it's a challenging thing. And what we're working toward to like design ourselves out of the systems, which we're, we're really interested in doing is we're trying to just thinking of it like this right now, kind of a, a cycle of succession where maybe we're coming in, getting mainframe systems in and really turning it over to a farm manager who's going to be a Costa Rican with more technical agricultural training, maybe more in the agronomy realm. And that person then could be the really long-term person at that project. That ends up feeling like a win-win for us because hopefully we're then facilitating the creation of a really cool job for somebody working on an amazing project that pays well, where there's, they get to learn and lead all sorts of stuff. And we can step back and, and maybe just be in a role of mentorship really to that person. And that's what we'd like to move toward and are having those conversations. It hasn't really happened yet on a project, but you know, these are things that take time to get to. You've identified an issue and so now how do you create the solutions for that? And that's going to take time on the ground because we don't have models for a lot of this work. We don't have examples of people who are doing it. You know, I had a meeting with some of some fellow permaculture podcasters. And that's one of the things that we were talking about. Each of us has a different style of show. We do our work in our own way. And even though we're all in the same realm, how we got to where we are and how we became known for what it is that we do are all different. So we can trade ideas, we can trade thoughts, but what works for one of us is not going to necessarily work for the other. So once we see that, how can we have a general conversation and then develop the specific solutions? Yeah, and I think that speaks toward the community of practice that what well, sounds like you guys are creating in the, the permaculture podcast realm, which I love, and that we're trying to figure out how to do here. And I, I think, you know, our, our little group, myself, Sam and Ugo, I think we do a really good job of it amongst the three of us and try to bring in more people through students and colleagues and coworkers and things like that. And preparing somebody makes me think about like, how do I have some, I'm sitting here at a project right now called Finca Luna No Way, but we administer the farm and we're having a conversation coming up about what it would mean to bring in a full-time farm manager. And I'm really excited about the conversation. And it's also this tricky thing where we have to find somebody who matches up with the owner's style, their needs, our needs, can work with the farm workers. And the nuance of actually like plugging somebody in who can really work is intimidating. And we have to do it. It's like the only way this particular project moves to the next level. And we all recognize that. And what becomes really fun is, is really starting to meet people around the country who might fill that role. There's really amazing organic farmer training programs in this country through the National Institute of Apprenticeship. And I, I increasingly just find young people that are ready, that are looking for work. We had an open house in one of our efforts to just kind of open our, whatever our work is freely to the world. We had an open house a couple of weeks ago and and there was a bunch of students from the University of Costa Rica's agronomy school, and they all felt that they were mostly being set forth into the world to sell agricultural products, you know, conventional agricultural products, or to go work for like a large pineapple plantation. And they, they didn't have many other options. They were really frustrated by that. And I just saw there were like seven or eight of them all excited about everything we were doing, some tropic agriculture and working with cow and trying to figure out how to bring animals into the system. And, and all I could think about was like, man, there's so many projects 
that need somebody like this managing it every day on the ground. And so it seems like these two things exist and perhaps our role, our particular kind of community is connecting those people together. And that's a really exciting thing to think about. Which provides you an opportunity to continue and grow your body of practice on the ground with all the people who you've worked with to bring in different people and kind of work as a matchmaker than to help provide additional success for these projects and the people who are interested in engaging. Exactly. And it's how we build ourselves out of a job. And like, this is kind of a joke. We talk about this internally, but like, I'm not that interested in working that much. I just want to find a little piece of land that I haven't found yet and be on the little piece of land and read my books and garden and hang out with friends and family. And I want a really simple life. How do we develop our business to get to that? And we have created our holistic contacts and Dan Palmer's helped us uh, of making permaculture stronger podcasts, navigate that. And in a lot of ways, it's a selfish act of like, I don't know if I want to be coming to Finca Luna every single day to check on the farm crew, to make sure that we got the weed trimmer fixed. And it's selfish and perhaps it is from a place of privilege. I, I don't know, but that's what we're trying to arrive at as individuals, as, as a small business. And it, it just feels like a natural fit then to plug somebody else in who, who's younger, who's ready for that, that daily act of being on the farm. Which also goes back to what you were saying earlier about working with your clients to select the plants that are easy to grow because they are suited to that climate, which then makes it easier than to find someone who is likely to have the technical experience with those crops rather than something that is being brought in for an export market that isn't routinely grown in Costa Rica or one of the farms in a neighboring country. Yeah, it's this funny game. We'll work with those type of projects as well. I have a call this afternoon with a client who wants to start a farm for a crop that there are, as far as I found, maybe a handful of this particular plant in the country. So it exists here. And so those are kind of different projects, but like looking at this, again, I'll reference Finca Luna Nueva, the project right now, we've kind of reached this stage, this cycle where our base staples are really well planted, at least what works well here, given pest problems and our, our capacity. And now we're starting to dip into more challenging kind of higher end vegetables that require microclimate and irrigation and maybe a little bit more technical pest control. And after two years of us being really diligent on the farm, and we're just just getting there. We have a consultant coming in to help us on pest control this upcoming Saturday, for example. And so it's really interesting to see how sites and projects change over time and when they become ready to maybe move into a more challenging or a more, I don't know, maybe more detail-oriented, more technical, growing kind of situation system. Which again points to continuing to grow our networks to look for the people who are good at the pieces that we're not and to continue to have those conversations so that we're not in a place where we have to do this work on our own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, knowing knowing when to hire good people is one of the first things I learned from a, a number of mentors that's always stuck with me. And and we were routinely hiring out work for, for all sorts of things. Our our specialty is probably in agroforestry systems. It's in big land planning and design. It's in kind of holistic context creation. But there's just infinite things that we just know enough about to to get ourselves in trouble as they say. And having that network is essential. 
Well, I really appreciate everything that you shared with me, Scott. When we were putting together this interview, there were some other places that I thought we might have some time to explore when it comes to expats and yeah. permaculture around the world. But with the time that we had set aside, I think that's something we'll have to talk about in a future conversation. In the time that we have remaining, do you have anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? Well, I would encourage people to come and visit Costa Rica. I think if they want to see a place that has a really interesting mix, just to touch on it a little bit of kind of expat projects and Costa Rican Tico projects, there is a strong permaculture community here. And there's a lot of really interesting projects to learn from and get involved with. And so I hope people come and visit and get a chance to experience that. I think it can be a place that provides a lot of inspiration for people, especially in, in these moments where maybe that's lacking a bit in the world. Thank you so much, Scott, for this conversation. As so often happens, and I know the audience has heard from time to time, it can take sometimes months to get an interview together. In our case, because of the pandemic and everything else, it's been a couple of years, but it's been <laughs> delightful to sit down and chat and to hear about a region of the world that I don't get to speak with folks that often about and to be able to share this conversation so people can learn more about what permaculture is like in Costa Rica. Great to connect finally. And yeah, I wait your visit. And that was Scott Gallant. You can find him and his design work at porvenirdesign.com. You'll of course find a link to that in the show notes, as well as one to the project he mentioned, Finca Luna Nueva Lodge, and to an upcoming permaculture design course there and at Brave Earth Community. That class runs from November 13th until November 26th, 2021. I would like to encourage anyone who is able to travel and visit permaculture sites within their own bioregion and elsewhere, including Scott's invitation to head to Costa Rica. If you haven't seen permaculture on the ground in a variety of contexts, it can be different from what we might imagine especially as the techniques move away from the conditions in Australia that started the movement or the often-discussed temperate climate food forest. Permaculture is, as Scott shared, different in all the places where it's practiced as it's spread across the world. I've often joked at times, though still believe the core idea to be true, that if you wanted to, you could create a permaculture design that looks like a Victorian tea garden. By applying our ethics, principles, strategies, and techniques to the form, the results can function within the ecosystem. By imagining designs like that, and being exposed to what people are doing, and the practices they're engaging in, the plants they use to fill out their design, and then how they incorporate it all together, we can be inspired and full of ideas that we can take back to where we're from, and radically transform our ideas of what permaculture looks like in our landscapes, and in our communities. Until we meet again, Spend each day examining your environment and how it shapes your design while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.